Hang on. Hang on. Halt. Welcome to This Might Be A Podcast. Before we get to today's episode on Hideaway Folk Family with Alex Reed, we've got a couple voicemails. First, we've got our friend Kai Pfeiffer calling in about some Patreon-related stuff. Hey, Greg. This is sometimes guest, uh, long-time listener Kai Pfeiffer calling in to let you know just how much I am really enjoying these exclusive uh, patron-only episodes of the podcast through your, uh, through your Patreon there. I just listened to Monopuff Part 2. It really reminded me just how many songs I love from uh, It's Fun to Steal. Uh, you know, the somewhat dated production style, but great funky bass, and of course that pop gold that is uh, that song Backstabbing Wire. It's awesome. You know, I listened to that album just completely into the ground when it first came out. Uh, I sure hope to hear some of these songs live someday. It'd be great if TMBG did cover them. Uh, extremely cool that John Ulyss was able to unearth some live versions of Monopuff songs. That alone, you know, was worth the price of, of admission to me, just hearing those. Hoping there's more Monopuff in the future, too. A third album would just uh, be mind-blowing. I would love that. So you know this, Greg, but I, uh, I upped my Patreon subscription uh, when I heard about your student Garrett's health issues. I'm super happy to hear that you've been able to raise money uh, for him. Oh, don't mind my kids there playing harmonica in the background. <laughs> I'll probably leave my pledge up a bit for a few months, at least so that I can, you know, catch up all the way and maybe see what else you have brewing. You know, these episodes on their solo projects like Monopuff, uh, interviews with the previous bandmates, not to mention these uh, themed episodes like accordion analysis on songs, and then... You know, that sax episode, which is uh, forthcoming, which I happen to be on with Andy and Spencer. Pretty cool, you know, and, and pretty great to get to know these people as well and talk with them. So, as you know, I tend to listen while I'm out running or at the gym. I tend to run three to five miles a day, so I'm going to need you to step up production a bit. <laughs> Just kidding. But keep them coming, man. Uh, talk to you soon. Thanks for calling in, Kai. I appreciate all the kind words. And then our friend Jonathan Leonard uh, has some Patreon thoughts as well. Hey, Greg, this is Jonathan. Um, I am calling about a older episode because I finally uh, joined on Patreon. Please join everybody and support Greg and what he's doing. Uh, listening to your second state songs episode, uh, specifically Montana, you guys pretty much hit the nail on the head with uh, thinking about it, somebody on their deathbed, but the only kind of interesting note that I always kind of thought about the song was the fact that at the end he says, no, I can finally go. And then there's one more resting note that doesn't have any kind of vocals on it, except for when he played it live on Conan. But at least the album version, I always kind of thought of it as now I can finally go. And then that beat is the actual moment 
when he passes away, and that's why there isn't any uh, singing or vocals on that last uh, note. Love the show. Thanks for calling in, fellas. Anyone can call in at 224-801-2930. That number again, 224-801-2930. Here we go. Welcome to This Might Be A Podcast, the song-by-song podcast about the greatest band of all time. They might be giants. I'm your host, Greg Simpson, and I'm here with S. Alexander Reed to talk about the song Hideaway Folk Family off of the self-titled They Might Be Giants debut. to the front door mother cause there's a guy with a long long fuse and the one thing you can't hide is all the fear you feel inside as the fuse is spelling out these words Alex hey hey how's it going good man where uh where are you at Right now, I'm in upstate New York. I'm actually in Ithaca, which is where uh, I'm pretty sure that John Flansburg, uh, if not was born, then spent some of his childhood here. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm 85% sure that his grandfather is buried in the cemetery. That's about a half mile from my house. There's a big stone that says Flansburg. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, his whole, his, <laughs> his whole family is Cornell, um, uh, Cornell family. They, they go back a few yeah. generations, and uh, I believe it was his father who designed the Cornell Campus Bookstore. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you have a picture of that that gravestone? I, think I do actually somewhere. Yeah, I'm 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 not I'm not like a total creeper who does these things, but like when I was walking there once and I saw it, I'm like, whoa, there's there's that. So I think yeah, that's that's interesting. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I I spent a tiny bit of time out there. My wife spent a uh, summer there uh, doing a uh, some summer classes at Cornell. Yeah. My wife's a uh, Spanish lit professor here at Purdue. Oh, nice. So I'm familiar with the uh, the trials and tribulations of uh, getting a PhD in something. Well, I have nothing more than like, uh, you know, a f- few handful of credits towards my master's just to renew my teaching license. It's just some letters. But I, I'm, so. I'm married to someone who uh, spent a lot of time in school like yourself. Yeah, so your, um, your degrees are in... Was it musicology? So a lot of what I do now is what people would classify as musicology, but I do have a degree in music theory and composition, and I also have an English degree. English degree, too? Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right, cool. And you are a uh, professor up there, yeah? Yes, professor at Ithaca College, uh, yeah. and I teach courses on, oh, popular music studies and songwriting and punk music and all kinds of fun stuff. I love that stuff. I <laughs> that My wife's always telling me that. She's like... Uh, you know, sometimes I mean, sometimes they'll let people that don't have a doctorate teach classes at, uh, you know, it's at uh, at the college level, and she's like, "You should teach a punk history class because you already know all that stuff anyway." You should just, you know, she's like, "You could do it." I'm like, ah, "I don't know. I don't. 
you know, I, I, I like teaching my elementary kids. Oh, then, sure. Uh, you know, that's great. Then I get to act like a kid all day. Um, yeah. And attempt to teach them about stuff that's complicated, at least fifth and sixth graders. So yeah, that, that's, uh, that's super interesting. I'm, I'm very, uh, interested in the, um, yeah, your com your the combination of like the uh, academic level classical music and composition type stuff, com you know, in in combination with uh, pop music, and uh, you've written a couple of books. Uh, is your newest one the one that's on industrial music? So I have uh, a book on industrial music called Assimilate. That one came out oh se several years ago at this point. Um, and uh, that's through Oxford, and it's a big tome that covers the entire history of, or at least most of the history of the genre, and does a kind of critical unpacking of it as well. Uh, and then with my uh, very good friend Elizabeth Sandifer, we wrote a book called Flood, which is about They Might Be Giants Flood, and that's in the 33 and a third series. And then later on this year, I have a new book coming out on the music of Laurie Anderson. Um, and her work, I think, in some kind of funny fuzzy way fits like halfway between they might be giants and industrial music i feel like it's it's this <laughs> sort of you know downtown avant-garde no wave um you know sometimes kind of funny but sometimes kind of dark thing so yeah yeah cool yeah i'm not familiar with their music but uh yeah i was just i didn't quite have time to listen to her stuff but yeah i was noticing that um I think it was uh, in your little bio on the uh, the uh, Ithaca College website. So, uh, I saw her name and I'm like, oh, I started to look her up, but I haven't had a chance to listen yet. Yep, she sounds fantastic. interesting. Yep. Yeah, I'm 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 a pretty big into all that post punk stuff too, and uh, I mean some some no wave stuff I can get behind, but really it it as you veer towards like you know Sonic Youth's you know third and fourth albums where they start getting a little bit more. Uh, uh, melodic, I suppose, if you want to say that. That that's my jam right there. Oh, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so tell me just a little bit about the. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's go back to the beginning of your fandom of T TMBG, and then we could work our way to uh, how you came to write the thirty three and the third. Uh, yeah. Co, co write it. Yeah. So t tell us about your fandom. Oh, I don't know if I use the word fandom, but um, but I but, <laughs> but 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 I've always loved their music. Um. I came to their music because I had two older sisters who were both pretty deeply enmeshed in like, you know, circa 1990 uh, high school nerd culture. And, you know, they would go to nerd camp and stuff like that. And then I eventually went to some of these programs. And, you know, it's um, a place where a lot of young kids are getting together just in a really excited state to meet and to share ideas and share music. And... Um, yeah, uh, I had heard I had heard their stuff. I think I heard probably Flood first, um, and this was within a year of it coming out. And I was you know ten years old at the time, and uh, then within a few years I had picked up Miscellaneous T and I had picked up uh, Lincoln and things like that. And actually, the first album from which a song uh, comes that we're going to be talking about today, that was one of the sort of harder nuts to crack, right? Because I had been used to the slightly more cooked version of the Meppy Giants that you get on the third and fourth records or so. Right. And, uh, and the first one's, you know, a little, a little bit of an oddball record, um, in some, in some fun ways. They were the first band I ever saw live. I saw them live up in New Hampshire, uh, when I was, I think I had just turned 13. Um, and this was on nice. the Apollo 18 tour, which was great. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. So I just they had have, a, um, so that was, uh, their first foray into, uh, 
live backing musicians. Yeah, it would have been Tony Mimone yep, and yep, uh, J- yep. JD Feinberg on drums. A- probably. Absolutely, Tony Mimone on bass, and uh, and they had horns with them, and they had you know big nice. a light show. It's the kind of thing where you know um, they were they were in the full flush of. Uh, major label funding at the time, <laughs> which right. was, <laughs> which was, which was a really, a really great moment to see them. Uh, and also, you know, because it was my first show and I was 13, absolutely everything was magical um, because everything is magical when you're that age. So I bet I did yeah. not see them until I was 20 yeah. or something. I saw a mink car tour was the first time I saw him um, in Iowa city, I believe. Oh wow. Yeah. 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 Cause I was in rock Island, Illinois going to school this, Augustana College, small liberal arts school, and uh, yeah, Iowa City was only like forty-five minutes away, yeah. so we'd go there to to see a lot of punk shows and stuff. Yeah, I think it was at the Union, maybe even. I'd have to check. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, go ahead, continue. Oh, not a whole lot more. I mean, I followed their music and I I wrote some reviews of it for you know my local high school paper and stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, gosh, saw them a few more times in college, and you know, shortly thereafter, it was always one of these things where I loved what they were doing. Um, and there are a lot of other acts that sometimes people will compare them to, and none of those other acts really stuck with me very much um, because most of my other interest at the time you mentioned that I did a book on industrial music my, most of my other interest at the time was on like really dark heavy you know serious miserable you know electronic music goth stuff industrial <laughs> stuff yeah um, right. and that's still where I spend a fair amount of time these days and then also I was going to music school so I was studying a lot of classical music and there was just like not that much room in my um, uh, in my in my personal bandwidth for like I feel like the the kind of goofy or the kind of silly, the kind of offbeat, strange funniness that the Miami Giants have um, hit really a sweet spot for me, a spot that kept suggesting that there was more to think about and explore, whereas, uh, you know, you listen to like a Weird Al record and it's all there on the surface. Nothing against Weird Al, right? But but it's... but it's you know, Very talented musician and very good oh, singer. Oh, sure. Oh, People sure. don't give him credit. Yeah, oh, enough credit for that. I have, I have often <laughs> said that culture was going to have one weird owl one person who is going to be a career parody artist and we lucked out that we got the one that we did because if you imagine all the ways that someone in his position could suck or screw up badly <laughs> yeah um the mind reels and yet he doesn't so good for him but point being they might be giants always suggests <laughs> some kind of depth to me um and it suggests uh really in in both both the john songwriting um, a particular set of strategies for dealing with the um, with the absurdities of the world. Yeah, they it, yeah, they're one of those bands for me, too. And I was getting into them. I didn't listen to anything that was like them. And still, I don't know if I still I don't know if I listen to anything that's like them. Like right. a lot of a lot of the bands that get lumped in with them. Like I do love Weird Al, but I wouldn't say they're. Uh, similar at all except that uh, they both have accordion and they both can be funny but it's in very different ways yeah um, but bands like you'll hear like like I'm not that into cake I'm not that into bare naked ladies I got nothing against those groups but like ones that people kind of compare to they might be giants I'm like oh I mean that 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 niche of rock music as you described it uh, you know poppy but both poppy and experimental uh funny but darkly funny it's it's filled so perfectly by they might be giants like i don't need anything else in that realm because when i got into them i was listening to mostly like skate punk and like yeah, yeah chicago stuff inspired by the ramones or like uh 
fat records, you know, really fast, no effects, lag wagon kind of stuff. And they might be giants somehow crept in there and, and dominated my listing. Um, but then I had, you know, the rest of the stuff I listened to was all third wave ska and punk stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Sounds like we're on the same page with all that. So have you kept up with them through their, you know, do you listen to all the new records and stuff too? I do. I mean, I, I know the first five or six records better than the next five or six records. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but every time there's a new record that comes out, you know, I always spend some time listening to it. I always make note of what my favorite stuff is. I really did like the last record. um, And um, um, I thought, I thought it was the most sort of thematically, um, thematically tightly tightly knit record that they've done in a long time um i like yeah. i like the you know, sort of you know thematics of you know let's get this over with and the uh um the sense of mortality throughout the record i thought was just really really a lot of fun so mm-hmm. you know so yeah i i do keep up um i also you know as always i keep up with um you know, hundreds and hundreds of other avenues of music. And just one of these things that I'm sure that a lot of people will experience as much as I try to resist nostalgia and as much as I try to resist falling into same old habits, you do just learn at a deeper level, or at least I learn at a uh, a deeper level, those first 20 albums that I ever listened to, you know, um, right. they just, they just stuck with me and they got into my brain when I was in middle school or whatever. And they might be giants have two or three records among those 20. So, um, so I just happened to, you know, I could sit down and, and, and just sing through the whole, the whole Lincoln record, you know, right. without, without right. even thinking about it. Whereas if you're like, Hey, do the same thing with, you know, the else I'd be like, Oh crud, not a chance, you know? So <laughs> I could probably do it with the else, but that's one of my that's one of my favorites of this, uh, this yeah. century, I suppose. Sure, I don't know. You kind of break down their career into decades now that they're they're about to hit uh, forty years as a band. Good grief! Uh, yeah, right. But yeah, for me, it's like I could sing every word to Apollo eighteen, and I could sing every word to Dookie, and never mind. You know, it's yeah, like those yeah. uh, or like the Weezer Blue Elm. You know, yep. the, they, those lyrics will never leave my mind. Um, I can even, you know, or I could sit down at the drum set and play through all those records without having to practice because they're just in my brain. Completely. Yeah. Uh, how did you, uh, I want to know the process to writing a 33 and a third. Cause again, my wife is like, you should write, you know about all these records and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, how does that work? I, I, I'm assuming you make some sort of pitch or you send like a first chapter or something to that. How, how, how did that all, all happen? That's basically what it was. Um, you write a first chapter, you write a pitch for it, um, and I don't know exactly what the process is these days for the series, but at the time, they would put out a call. They would say, okay, we are opening up calls for proposals mm-hmm. on new books in the 33 and a third series, and they expressly say that they are more interested in how you approach your writing than in the album that you choose to write about. Um, Hmm. You know, which means that they sometimes will put out books on some fairly non-canonical records. uh, And there are some... Like Celine Dion's greatest hits? Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) Let's talk about love. Yeah. Um, And and in some cases, you know, there are are super quote-unquote important records that they're not going to bother commissioning a book on uh, because it's already been done elsewhere. You know, I don't think that anyone needs to write a 33 and a third on on the Beatles, you know, right now or anything like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, we ended up, um, so Elizabeth and I sat down and, and spent a good while talking about like, okay, what is, what is it about flood? That's interesting. You know, and we started thinking, well, geez, 1990 is this really interesting moment where 
you're coming out of one set of stereotypes surrounding the type of person who might be attracted to this music. Um, I'm going to use the word like nerd culture, geek culture, very, very broadly and in heavy scare quotes, understanding that those (laughs) things are, you know, loaded words and that they change over time and that not everybody who loves this music is a nerd and not everybody who's a nerd loves this music. But anyhow, the, Mm -hmm. um, the sort of, um, bottom of the social ladder that they had occupied during the 1960s, 70s, 80s, your Revenge of the Nerds era, right, when they were a (laughs) punchline, that starts changing right around 1990 when you get people like um, Bill Gates and Gary Kasparov really um, starting to get some public attention. And as the internet starts to become a thing and becomes clear that the entire world is going to run on this over the course of the 1990s, um, this entire position really changes and with it uh the culture stops uh hiding in the shadows and becomes a little bit more of its own sort of proud thing and uh a more defined thing in terms of how you engage with the world rather than what you engage with the one thing that i would say that i feel like i should say in the years since this book has come out is that nerd culture has become such a thing on the internet that it has um not only gotten off the bottom of the social totem pole in some hierarchy of cool which is totally outdated by now but it has its own kinds <laughs> of toxicity to it right you know like yeah. you know you read about you read about gamergate and all this stuff and you're like oh geez i don't want to i don't want to be associated with these people or at least i don't right. um and um and so that's that's the kind of like afterward if someone was like hey we're going to re-release the book right you know write a little five page afterward to it i'd be like yeah what what i find interesting and useful about the Mappy giants is that um they were never so short-sighted um or triumphalist as to say yeah we are the way things should be they're always keeping their eye on the world around them and as they've gotten you know in the, in the 21st century they've gotten a little bit more overt with their politics and i think that's been good and useful because otherwise they are the kind of um, music that might attract uh, some unthinking attention, you know, um, and mm-hmm. I, I like that they get people to say, no, 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 let's keep thinking on this. Sure. Yes. Science is real, but also the humanities are real, you know, be good to other humans. Um, yeah. the, the, mm-hmm. kind, the, the kind of thing that, um, that when you're simply in 1990 struggling to be recognized as, you know, uh, someone who's deserving of more being more than being shoved into a locker, uh, might not yet be <laughs> on your radar, but it really has come into the radar in the last 20 years. Yeah, it, it's because uh, the book came out in 2014. 2014. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, it's really good. Thank you. By the way, I, you know, I haven't said that yet. But uh, yeah, just to what you were touching on there. They might be Giants fans. Like when you go to their shows, have you been to a show more recently? Yeah, I saw them uh, shortly before the shutdowns. Mm-hmm. It's such a lovable group of misfits and you know uh, and cool kids i feel like they're the kind of music that even especially a record like flood you know i mean it would yeah. it went platinum yeah. you know there were plenty of non-geeks that that liked it it's just such a wonderful array of people that are at the shows and it's such a warm kind of inviting atmosphere and and so they have definitely avoided that kind of um that weird yeah, people capitalizing on geek culture becoming a thing, like stuff like the Big Bang Theory or whatever. Right, it's right. Like, they they feel like they know, have nothing to do with that to me. Yeah. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Or the Gamergate stuff. It's like that's not. 
Yeah, so it's you know it's it's the lovable, uh, curious intellectual types, and I mean not that you have to be intellectual to like they might be giants, but people that are curious about the world and uh, like learning. It, it seems to be kind of an overarching theme of uh, uh, or overarching characteristic of their fan base. Yeah. So, yeah. so we submitted the proposal for the book, um, much to our delight. Uh, it was one of the, I think, five selected out of, out of about 500. And wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, when there are so many good records out there, there are so many good thinkers and writers out there, there's so much stuff that deserves to be written and read. And I remember during the particular round of open call submissions for 33 and a third that I was part of, someone had put up a like a blog spot where folks could say, Hey, mine was not chosen, but I'm still really, really proud of it. Let me, you know, show, show you my first chapter. And it was mm-hmm. full of such, such wonderful writing on such interesting music by such good people. And, um, there's always something a little arbitrary, you know, as to, as to how this stuff gets, um, gets put out into the world. But, uh, sure. yeah. Um, so after that point, we then got in touch with, Oh, the band's management. And we ended up sitting down and having a very, very nice lunch with them. But one of the things that I have found as I've done a lot of both musicological writing and musical musical analysis and journalism is that um, the best work tends to speak in some ways for itself. That is to say, um, I loved sitting down with John and John. They were totally great guys. and uh, And that was a complete... Um, delight in every way. But a lot of what they said, the degree to which I knew their music and the degree to which I had done, you know, the reading and the degree to which Elizabeth and I had talked through some of these ideas, it ultimately felt like they were affirming some of the things that we had already been thinking or they're saying, well, mm-hmm. what we're really interested in is this one experience that we had had, you know, at some point and Elizabeth and I would look at each other and say, well, that's, that's cool. But what we're interested in is, you know, this other thing. And ultimately, the interview was great, and, I, and, and and someday I might even, you know, publish the transcript of it because it's like three hours oh. of amazingness. Um, oh, yeah, you, you really should. Yeah, but, um, but um, we weren't really setting out to write a behind-the-scenes, you know, VH1, mm-hmm. you know, get, get the real story from John and John themselves because, you know, the artists, if they're doing their job, the story is the art, and so we were sort of, you know, meditating on it, which is one of the things, I think, I think somebody on Amazon, you know, on the, on the book review was like, I wanted more information about the band and the album. That's, that's fine. Um, and you can go find a lot of that other stuff out there, but, you know, a lot of the times one of the things that um, at least I work for in my writing is shedding some, some new angles of light on it. So we ended up ultimately writing a book that was as much sort of historically interpretive and meditative as it was simply about, you know, who played uh, what instrument on what track through what amplifier right. and stuff like that, you know? Um, right. <laughs> I'd uh, love to talk to Flans about gear. Oh, oh I mean like, and again, <laughs> that's a total joy. All this stuff is right. completely, yeah. completely valid. Um, and, uh, and, and we've had, you know, one or two bits of contact with the band since then, and it's always been friendly. So the whole thing was a, uh, was a good experience. And, um, uh, yeah, we ended up doing, um, a reading of the book, uh, when the band came through Ithaca the last time. And that was super fun. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I have, I have a handful of 33 and a thirds. Lots of times I'll just check them out from the library, but one of my favorites, as far as you were like, what you were just saying, something that uh, was a unique perspective on an album and a unique uh, way to write it was the uh, 
the one on Black Sabbath Master Reality by John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, who has been on this show, and I didn't get to, I, I could have talked his ear off for hours. You know, they're Mountain Goats are what I consider my second favorite band, and I think everyone listening to the show already knows that. But the way he approached that album, because he's a huge metalhead, yeah. Um, and the reason he's only familiar with mostly the early They Might Be Giant stuff is because he got so hard into uh, metal uh, and <laughs> drugs. Uh, and then when he came back out of it and he had kids and he got into their kids' albums, he's got that, that missing area there. But he was a huge, he is a huge metalhead. And he wrote that one almost from the perspective of his one of his most famous songs, uh, the best ever death metal band out of Denton, where it's a kid who gets shipped off to... Uh, Basically like a psych ward, I think. Uh, I haven't read it in a while. But uh, he's he's in this institutionalized setting when that album comes out. Which I'm forgetting what year it was, 72 or whatever like that. Uh, and some his friend sends him the cassette of this new album by his favorite band. So he's listening to it in this setting. And basically, so it's like a fictionalized tale, but it contains facts and stuff about the album from this character's perspective. Super good. I would highly recommend that. But you have to, if you go into it like, yeah, I want to know what, you know, how big of a Marshall stack we're <laughs> using <laughs> right. on this, then, you know, you'd probably be disappointed. But It's not uh, a Randy Rose yeah. biography, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, so why did you pick... Hideaway Folk Family as your your tune, and I, I'd say the spreadsheet was a little more open when you when you picked it, so there were some choices available. How did you settle on this uh, tune? So for the last few years, I've taught a course on um, the Gothic aesthetic in literature and media and film and music and things like that, and. The Gothic is broadly concerned with the hidden, the unknown, or as uh, John and John might call it, the else, right? The sense that, yes, there's the world that you know, um, and you might even think that you know everything that there is. You might even have, you know, a sense of the horizons being very, very far away. But there is always, if not the reality, then the possibility of something, capital E, else, right? There's something out there. Um, and, you know, it's the question of what's what's underneath the rug, what's down in the basement, what's up in the attic, what are you hiding, what are the skeletons in your closet, you know? Or, or, or like, what's, what, what's, what's the family secret that's the reason why, you know, uh, you've never met your uncle? You know, all, all, these, all these weird sorts of, <laughs> you know, like lurking questions. And... A while ago, uh, around the time when I, I picked out Hideaway Folk Family, I was listening to the uh, listening to the Pink album for the first time in a while, and the fact that it's right next to Thirty Two Footsteps um, really struck me because Thirty Two Footsteps is mm. this is this very weird um, sort of song about uh, about you know mystery and the unknown in the same way that like where your eyes don't go you know has this kind of paranoia uh-huh. to it right the sense of you know where your eyes don't go there's something behind you you know something something is looking at you all the time you're always being watched and there's something lurking um 32 footsteps you know leading to the room what is this room uh, and then at the end when you're hearing like the um you know the slogging of no 30 31 <laughs> you know at the end yeah. of that song where it sounds like someone's getting you know whipped for the 30 pieces of gold after you know turning in Jesus Christ to the authorities. Um, that's always how how I read that moment. But it's like it's it. it's just this sense of like um, ominous, torturous, unanswered weirdness, right? And this is really part of um, 
part of the elusive aesthetic that I think a lot of the best the Mappy Giants work really, really indulges in this sense that like, if you worked really hard, maybe you could kind of understand why they're holding up, you know, the head of this of this, you know, photocopied guy from the from the early 20th century in their shows or something like that. Or maybe you could kind of understand, you know, um, what what they're talking about with exquisite dead guy. But the point isn't necessarily that you have found the answer, because even if you find mm-hmm. even if you're like, all right, fine, they're talking about exquisite corpse the game played by the dadaists in the 1920s or something like that even if you find that out there's still the sense of okay but like why is this important to you like what are you getting out Mm -hmm. of this and and if it's you know if it's some corpse then what what is it the corpse of you know etc 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 there's there's always something more and so when i would hear this part of the pink album 32 footsteps and hideaway folk family um, I could never simply interpret Hideaway Folk Family as just a nice sounding, you know, folk song. Um, there's all these weird little lines lurking around the edges, uh, the most obvious of which is uh, someone's going to get you, right? Yeah. You know, just, just the idea. get you. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the idea that, you know, y- you have to hide or else, or else you will be um, eaten alive. And this, <laughs> and this, you know, goes along with a lot of the... Oh, I don't know, the child lore uh, that exists in the West. All these, you know, folk songs, Ring Around the Rosie, which is, you know, really about the Black Plague and stuff like that. Right. And all these weird little songs that, uh, and nursery rhymes and fairy tales that we unthinkingly pass along. And the closer you look at them, the more you scratch the surface, the more you're like, hey, wait a minute, what is this? Uh, (laughs) And so, and so especially... Um, you know, when, when you're, when you're a kid, or at least when I was a kid and I was first getting into this music, speaking of those first 20 albums that you get, especially if it's in the day when you had to pay for music and you would buy it as a physical piece of media and it wouldn't be streaming. And so it ultimately felt like you were dealing with a scarcity economy, right? Where you would, you know, Mm -hmm. you maybe get $5 of allowance and so you'd save up for two or three weeks and then, you know, and then go out and buy the tape or go out and buy the CD. If you didn't like it immediately... You wouldn't throw it away. You wouldn't say, meh, I didn't like that one very much, and then move on to the next thing in the way that you might in the Spotify age. Instead, Mm -hmm. you would say, well, geez, I spent $12 on this tape. I have to like it. I have to learn to like it. (laughs) And so you'd listen to it and ponder, what am I missing, right? What am I I not getting as I listen to this? And this is also like the mindset of a 12-year-old, you know, interpreting the world because they know that there is this, like, sense of aesthetic and social cachet that exists out there um, and, and that you don't get to dictate the terms of the world you now have to interpret and you know find your place within the terms of the world and so as I was listening to this record you know when I was a kid I was like this was not my favorite song right this was in fact one maybe maybe one of my least favorite songs on the record um Uh you know it's it's not like uh it's not like she's an angel where you know the first time you hear it you're like holy cow what a great song right Mm -hmm. with this one I was like what what is this weird thing and it seemed impenetrable for a lot of you know for a long time and eventually i came to love it maybe just through repetition but also i think one of the things that i do like about it is the sense of um the ominous the sense that there is something coming and that this is to me kind of framing one particular way of being um and if we can get into the song i would love to sort of to sort of dive in from here oh yeah yeah cool. yeah uh-huh um because what i think about with this song um 
I think about texts like "In Cold Blood" by Truman Capote, right? Uh, which is mm. about you know, uh, uh, which is which is the nonfiction novel of um, of, a, of a horrible, horrible murder in Kansas where a whole family gets killed, or for that matter, um, you know, and that's like 1959, 1960 when that comes out. Um, you think about like Deliverance, right? You know, the early '70s yeah. film <laughs> where you know. It's this journey through a very isolated, um, very, very insular little town uh, with... Yeah, exactly, right? With the banjo and the folk music and everything, and this sense that that there's a a deep distrust of of the outside world right and this is something that shows up in you know movies like uh the village or the witch or or whatever um but when i think about this song you know with this idea of like referring to your mom as mother you know tippy toe to the front door uh-huh. mother in the way that like you'd see you know old movies like friendly persuasion where the father and mother would refer to each other as father and mother because that's all they were right um mm-hmm. um this sense that like you're in this little house that there's someone out there. You don't know who it is. It doesn't matter who it is because all the world is just one big threat. And it might as well be, you know, all things folded into one. It could be, you know, the next door neighbors. It could be some animal from the woods. It could be the hippies down the road. It could be whatever, right? Um, the Democrats. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I teach in two small Indiana towns. And I, I wouldn't say most people are like that. I wouldn't characterize, you know, there's a lot of really great families. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And kids there that I teach. But it is one of these... Very conservative area and uh, yeah, lots so of Trump signs back in the time. So that's, there's there's that fear of uh, people that they probably don't even have have ever met. You know, yeah, liberal yeah. people or other opinions. Yeah, yeah, and and this is really um, what I kind of you know hear this song as as being a lot about. It's this it's this kind of you know domestic worst case scenario song of you know there's. Um, Somebody who's going to get you. Who's at the door? It's a guy. You know, we don't know anything about him. We know nothing. It's just, it's just a guy with a long, long fuse, mm. or um, <laughs> you know, tippy toe to, to the um, uh, to the flatbed father. They're pouring out our gasoline. Who's they? Doesn't matter, right? Mm. They might be right. giants, right? So, uh, so just just this <laughs> sense that like there's this this like unspoken them, and so I think about like. You know, you know the American Gothic uh, painting, you know, with the 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 two people on the farm in Iowa. Sure, my wife and I parodied that on uh, our second EP. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> we were holding guitars instead of pitchforks. Yeah, like that's that's exactly who the mother and the father are in my mind when I hear this song. You know, just just these like overly stern, um, extremely fearful. Uh, people who you know are are going to guard their house with that pitchfork, uh, and and to me, hearing this in the context of some of the other signifiers in the song, and thinking about the way that so so this is a uh, this is a Flansburg song, I'm pretty sure, um, and thinking about the kind of cultural references that Flansburg was making, especially early on in his songwriting, um, you know this this seems to me something that one might have seen in that 60s and 70s moment, you know, growing up where on the one hand of America, you had your counterculture, you know, you had people going off and going to Woodstock or whatever. And then you had um, the the sort of opposite side of that, the people who who were who were um, battening down the hatches and who were, you know, saying, no, 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 not not in my country or not in my house. And the best thing that we can do is is just simply hide away and wait it out. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like in a way we could um, 
really modernize the interpretation of this and make it about people who uh, believe in Q. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's it's broadly applicable, and and again, it's got it's got that sort of classic they might be giants ambiguity. Where on the one hand, it, it's a little bit sympathetic to these conspiracy minded um mm-hmm. you know approaches to the world you know um but on the other hand of course of course it's a it's a critique of it you know um um yeah so so that's 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 my my five cent um opening opening bargain uh with the uh, hideaway folk family oh that was at least 10 cents all right no. <laughs> inflation as, as far as um specific lyrics go there's uh the um Sadly, the cross-eyed bear. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, in we, the uh, the early years handbook, you know, they say. Um, I'm not sure which one of the Johns would have would have told this story, but um, a Catholic school pun. Yeah. In an old hymn, the line "Gladly the cross-eyed bear" is sung, mutated by Sunday school smartasses into <laughs> "Gladly the cross-eyed bear." I love. Uh, so you get that I little teddy bear Sunday kind of school image. Smartasses. That's, that's right. <laughs> relatable content yeah good uh, alliteration there in keeping with the songs uh disconsolate did I can't, disconsolate I can't talk right now disconsolate tone uh the bear's name was changed to sadly and uh i always heard that as sadly comma the cross-eyed bears yeah. been put to sleep i hear it the same way yep yeah yeah but apparently the bear's name is sadly that doesn't make as much sense to me but that's what they said so hey uh Anyway, yeah, that's uh, that's a fun little uh, fun little tidbit. Gladly the cross-eyed bear. Yeah. Sadly the. And and with that, yeah. you get you, <laughs> you get great. like a little um, a little whiff of that like American you know Christianity uh, you know thrown in there a little bit of that sense of like self-sacrifice you know all all these things that you mm-hmm. can imagine this particular folk family valuing. And the Johns definitely have a uh, complicated history with uh, religion. You know, it's pretty obvious that, you know, it's something that, um, I mean, I guess I couldn't say for sure if they grew up in, do you, I mean, do you know, did they grow up in religious households? I mean, their parents were both, both kind of academic types, so I'm not positive if uh, they were I also sh- religious I types. sure don't think that they grew up in any simply doctrinaire religious households. Well, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. Definitely not. You know, there was intellect, you know. Curious, curious intellectuals meeting with other intellectuals uh, type households, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> but but yeah, there there are often some religious thing themes that creep in, and they're not necessarily pro religious themes, but not necessarily anti religious themes either. You know, kind of um, questioning, you know, mm-hmm. of religion. Uh, wh- what do you think about the? Uh, l- let's talk about that astrology report. All right, hello, this is <laughs> Leslie Down. Okay, so so the first thing that I notice uh, when when we get to that part of the bridge, so I love how unexpected it is because if you give the first two verses and choruses to like any songwriter in the world and say, okay, what's your bridge going to be? Zero, zero mm-hmm. percent of them would write this bridge, right? I love, <laughs> I love how it's uh. this like intrusion from the outside and that's reinforced because I, I think that that's, um, Linnell on the, uh, on, on the vocal, isn't it? Uh, let's see here. It says, um, no, it sounds like it's flans, it? okay. uh, at least on the All wiki. Right. It says right. to, to get that, that odd, rhythm there okay. it says Fl- flansburg's voice was blasting in his headphones on a two second delay all oh, right uh so kind of talking against himself in a weird 
not being able to hear himself properly. And this, of course, was intentional. Yeah, I now remember um, reading yeah. this. At any rate, it's the sense of like an outside voice, right? And so when you say like, hello, this is Leslie Down, uh, it really sounds like, you know, someone on the radio or something like that. Right. Um, and because it's coming from the outside, um, to me, I sort of hear it as like, here's here's the home astrology report. That's the stuff of the outside world. I, I, I'm sure that there's someone who thinks, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you could write some some interpretation, I guess, uh, that this is that this is is the doctrinaire belief system of the family. But what I kind of always heard it as is this external source of um, source of grief and power in the world. Like, imagine that this is. Like I said, 60s, 70s. Imagine that this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, right? As they (laughs) want to say. Or the Um, Cajun Aquarius. Exactly, right? You know, imagine that this is 1968 um, and you've got this terrified family. And what are they terrified of? Well, the easiest thing to point to at this point might be astrology or something like that, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, It's all these weirdos with their heathen religions and you can hear it on the radio and everything. And so, um, you know, it's, it's like blaring in. And I think I'd have to listen to the song again, but I think that, you know, the chords at this point go to like a parallel minor kind of a thing. Um, and so it sounds like it's, you know, suddenly getting really dark and you get these big guitars and it's just this like external kind of rockist, um, psychedelic, you know, uh, blaring of, of, of what that terrifying threat is. But of course it's highly vague, you know, it's, it's the stars themselves that have turned against you. Right. And I believe you're right there. The, the song is in D major, but then when you get to that bridge, it hits hard with a D, but then it goes to a C. Yeah, exactly. Natural. Yep. And then you get a B, a B flat and an F in there. So yep, it's, yep, uh, yep. absolutely D minor yeah. stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. So it really amplifies the, um, what would be maybe, you know, spooky and scary to this family. For sure. Uh, Amplifies that, yeah, and the odd nature of the way he says it. Um, And another scary thing to them or the way, way, you know, these outsiders might talk would kind of sound like the fake backwards uh, singing that they do at the end of the song. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, right, and (laughs) and like the, the entire sense of like the song closing with that fake backwards singing, you know, it's it's the sense, at least when I listen to it again, that there's something out there, right? That there's something more that you don't understand what it is and that your little mind will never be able to wrap itself around, but it's almost certainly evil, right? <laughs> because in the 1980s, the entire discourse surrounding backwards vocals is that it was always like satanic masking vocals, right? It was always, right. you know, the sort is of thing dead. where you, right, Paul is dead or, you know, you play... Uh, another one bites the dust backwards and Freddie Mercury goes, it's fun to smoke marijuana. It's fun to smoke marijuana. <laughs> I never heard that. Try one. <laughs> it sometimes. It's clear as day. It's great. Um, but the, um, uh, well, you know what I do want to do and I haven't done it yet. I think I'll drop a little clip in here. I want to take the, even though it's fake backwards singing, I'm going to go ahead and take a clip at the end and flip it so we can hear uh, uh, what it sounds like. It won't sound like anything, but it'll sound funny. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to throw that in there for fun.
so like on that level, if you if you get up and you you know you walk across the room and start spinning the record backwards by hand, uh, just to hear what they're doing, you can hear that they're just messing with you. Um, but mm-hmm. alternatively, you could also say that no, 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 it, it just means that the message is it is extra hidden, right? It's extra occult because you can't even get it backwards, right? It's right, right. Um, and so it it puts you into this kind of conspiracy thinking frame of mind, which is exactly what they're, you know, sending up in this song. So, um, so yeah, I, I, those, those are a lot of the reasons why I was attracted to this song so strongly because it kept suggesting, you know, uh, a great big other out there, a great big else, a great big weird, dark, Mm -hmm. deep something whose bottoms could not be seen from, you know, from, from, from any vantage point. And even just on, on the surface, like it is other than that bridge, it is in the ending. It is pretty pleasant to listen to. Oh, for sure. Um, like, and I even love just like the gentle, like the tippy toe to the, like <laughs> tippy toe is such a funny tippy-toe phrase to use in a right. rock song. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I really love the harmonies that, uh, like Linnell's vocals kind of chasing Lands on the someone's going to get you, and yeah. where they kind of settle into that harmony. Yep, yep. Uh, and I like, the, the word, I like your usage of the word chasing there because, again, it's you know, it's it's like Linnell coming after Flans. And like, <laughs> if you wanted to get into the music, I've I've got a little piano here. Yeah. Um, it's it's one of these things where like if if you know your 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 Flansburg writing tendencies, um, oftentimes he will. Um, like he's coming from more of like a, a sort of like classic punk and new wave background than like Linnell is, mm-hmm. who's coming more from like a almost like a almost like like Broadway harmonies sometimes, right? Um, yeah, I, I I hate to use that phrase, but sort of you know classic parlor song harmonies and things sure. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so when you hear like a Flansburg song that starts off with this and goes into this augmented chord right there, you know. Um, it's got something a little simultaneously sentimental and creepy about it, right? This, uh, you know, this moment sounds like right stretching sim- that D chord. Out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It sounds it sounds wrong, but it also sounds wrong specifically in the in the way that you might expect a 1920s, you know, um, you know, piece of sheet music to be wrong. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It does almost have that kind of Tin Pan Alley Absolutely. feel to it that Linnell likes. Yeah, yeah. The, the, like. Guys writing a song uh, as as their job and pumping out the sheet music, where it's very, um, but yeah, it's very ominous sounding, but deliberate and kind of it leads well into that B minor. Yeah, um, yeah, it's so well written. And while it starts, like I said, in D major, which is a very guitar friendly key, yeah. you know, Flansburg likes to write in these guitar friendly keys. And then Linnell, who uh, you know, when I've covered, forced people to to do live covers of of uh, Linnell songs with me the guitarists are always like fucking hey man why <laughs> you know like we'll do climbing the walls or something and they're like jesus christ why are there so many chords in this song we're like flans you know this one is a little bit of an exception but it starts out in a very guitar friendly yep. manner and then you get you know a d augmented five is not the most friendly of guitar chords yep. um yeah I mean, hell, like B flat for that matter. That matter, it's like you know, you got to bar it. There's no nice open B flat major chord. Uh, so it kind of straddles that line between. Uh, it almost it starts out as like typical Flans progression, rock friendly or folk friendly, uh, and then kind of 
turns into almost like a, a Linnell inspired kind of a chord progression. And I think one of the things to keep in mind, um, I don't know exactly when when Flans wrote this, but it comes out in 1986, um, and it's a safe bet that he wrote it, you know, somewhere between 80 and 86. A lot of these songs came from pretty early on. Um, it wasn't on the demo cassette either, so yeah. it's, it's probably sometime close to the Pink Could be. album release, yeah. But given that they were both, you know, born when they were born, like the memory of the folk revival in America, you know, that sort of Pete Seeger through Bob Dylan kind of thing, you know, that starts in the mm-hmm. 50s but really gets going by the early 60s, that was still um, available both in the memories of uh, the Johns and broadly of culture in general, right? In a way that now it's nearly 40 years on, it's 35 years on. And it's easy for us to, you know, think of that as entirely a thing in the past, but like a lot of the, um, a lot of the gestures, you know, with this, doom, 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 boom, bum, 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 you know, that mm-hmm. kind of almost like cowboy melody, you know, you, 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 you sort of expect yeah. to hear it on like a, on like a Jimmy Dean yeah. record or something. Um, yeah. And like that fake whistling. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. Like, right. yeah, it's like, all, all those sounds <laughs> were still part of, you know, the cultural goo in 1986. Um, <laughs> and, and they spoke to a certain kind of, you know, rural sentimentality that these days is exclusively jettisoned to the past, but still, I think, lingered a little bit in the present um, in the 1980s. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we talked about the bridge, but we didn't talk about Leslie Down. I know you had a little <laughs> theory on this because I was looking into Leslie Down, and as far as I can tell, she never did any uh, TV or radio about astrology, from no. what I can tell. So, so yeah, there's there's an actress named Leslie Ann Down, and I don't think that that's uh, anything. I think I think that that like <laughs> communism, that's a red herring. Um, I think if yeah. um, uh, if if you're going to listen to that bridge where it starts off with this, like, hello, this is Leslie Down. Um, what I hear in, um, in this, and here's, here's where I'm veering into borderline Gnostic interpretation rather than, <laughs> rather than like carefully measured anything. But I'm thinking here of those American Gothic mother and father sitting, you know, at home alone and they're tuning their giant radio, you know, they're, they're tuning their giant pre-transistor radio, um, and it's this outside world. And why why would they bother to say, hello, this is Leslie Down? Why would they announce a name unless that name were supposed to connote something of the outside world? And so to me, when I hear something like Leslie being spoken by, you know, a man's voice, I'm like, okay, let's think about this kind of, you know, hip androgynous naming thing and astrology that was, you know, really... Um, all over the 1960s and 1970s. And also, ma- Leslie Down is British, and he doesn't do any sort of British. So it's right, spoken right, in an American right. male's voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And so, and so, I, th- I think of um, um, Sidney Omar is th- is the person that I think of. Sidney Omar, who was the most well-known astrologer in America in the 1960s, was a big. Um, part of how astrology got popularized, at least at the most sort of wide syndicated levels. Uh, he was this, um, uh, you know, charming elder weirdo who made records about <laughs> what your fortune and destiny would be like if you were a Scorpio or a Taurus or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, his voice was kind of like this. And he similarly had this, you know, his, his first name is Sydney, which is another one of these androgynous names, um, uh-huh. kind of like Leslie. And when I listen to, to old Sydney Omar records, um, let me see if I can just dial this up. Give me a second here. Yeah, I know. I'm looking on YouTube right now. There's, there's something I feel like I should drop a little. All right. Clip here we go. Here. Let me see if I can. Let me see if I can play one. Give me a hot second. 
a YouTube channel called Strange Vinyl. Has has some of his record on, uh, I guess, a track on the Sagittarius. So here's here's his record on Scorpio, and listen to how he starts it off. I, I, I think you should be able to hear this. This is Sidney Omar, and this is about you, Scorpio, born from October 23rd to November 21st. You were born under an intriguing, perhaps one of the most controversial of the zodiacal signs. <laughs> so you can hear that, right? You know, it starts off <laughs> yeah. with, you know, this is so-and-so, just announces who he is, and he's speaking and in this way. a very deliberate way of speaking. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, if I had to, if I had to, based on nothing but my gut of having spent a very long time of my life thinking about, like counterculture of the late 20th century um if i if i had to throw five cents in betting in any direction um to that bridge i would throw it towards sydney omar um because it really yeah. seems to me even even if that's not what they were thinking right who who knows if that's what they were thinking i flans Flan, would know <laughs> but like but even if flans couldn't pull out sydney omar's name that's the kind of thing that um, that someone who grew up in the '60s and '70s would have heard, and that to yeah. me is 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 the voice of that external astrologer. I also like that the two, uh, you know, uh, astrological predictions or whatever that this character makes are both very foreboding and negative tourists contemplate domestic turmoil oh, okay for they're sure. in this house <laughs> where th- house where things are about to go wrong they think and then aquarius abandon hope for future plans you know you're gonna have to hide away you know whatever you had planned forget about it yeah i love that well and and one of the things that that works for is it does it does work in that way that the horoscope could therefore be sympathetic to the people in the house or at least related to them. Like imagine that you're that mother in the house, you turn on the horoscope and on the one hand, this is nonsense from the outside world, right? This is, this is an entire belief system that is to be rejected. But one of the reasons why it's so fearful is that niggling possibility that it could be true, right? That they could be Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And therefore you have to push against their claims to truth. And so the fact that they're saying abandon hope for future plans, contemplate domestic turmoil, you know that that just makes it all the worse it would be one thing if it were saying you know aquarius it's going to be a bright sunshiny day she might be like well okay but you know here it's just the sense of oh no you know i have to kill both the message and the messenger (laughs) let's take a quick break to hear from one of our podcast friends you like they might be giants huh i hope so considering the podcast you're listening to do you want to listen to another podcast where they mention they might be giants almost every episode, and it has nothing to do with that band? Of course you do. Well, then we have the podcast for you. At Bare Naked ABCs, we discuss every Bare Naked Lady song alphabetically. We break down the music, break down the lyrics, discuss other appearances by the band, and just have a fun time in general. But we also have interviews sometimes with people related to the band, such as when we talk to Dave Foley of Kids in the Hall, Harlan Williams, Susan Rogers, and of course, Stephen Page and Andy Cregan from Bare Naked Ladies. So if you like funny, sarcastic, and irreverent humor and music, come listen to us talk about the Canadian They Might Be Giants over at Bare Naked ABC. Uh, well, let's listen to some live clips here. Now, this um, on the gigantic uh, doc on the fellas uh, in the extras, there is this. Um, we got some pretty good audio here for such an old show. We got them playing it in 1987, specifically April 17th, 1987 at Parody Hall. 
This song is called Hideaway Fuck Family, and it's about a family that has to hide away. fun watch too and people should look it up it's on the actual particle men youtube channel it's uh, got that that wonderful vhs quality <laughs> but but it's actually watchable yeah. you know it's not uh all warbly and such but the uh, I, I like that version uh, i wish you could hear the crowd a little better but so that's why i'm also going to play this not as good uh, of audio recording this 1990 uh show in london where they played it and, and my friend Daryl Till and guest of the show and a frequent covers artist uh, on his Astral B channel. He has the entire concert up there. But uh, this Hideaway Folk Family one, Flans gives, you know, he's in London. So he's like, maybe it's the first time they've played it there. And he's like, I got to tell people how they're supposed to scream like they're in hell in the bridge. Because instead of the Leslie Down stuff, scream like you're in hell. <laughs> and it sounds really good on this one. And I'm going to play quite a bit of it because, yeah, this intro from Flans. I, I, I love the way Flans will set up songs. And he still does it so wonderfully. Uh, so let's check that out. Live in London, 1990. There are only seven traditions to the IP Giants show. The last tradition, of course, being the secret pact that we make with each and every audience. And that is to ask you to solo jam and do some free improvisational screaming with us at the end of the show. 
that was not as free or as improvisational as we like, because in our free improvisation, I, the free improvisation band leader, takes over. So please, ladies and gentlemen, upon this cue,
Yeah, one of the things that strikes me as kind of funny, um, I don't know how Americocentric my take on this song is, but but on a gut level, it feels pretty pretty centered in like American experience. And one of the things that I always wonder mm-hmm. about is how their music translates to people who are hearing it in such a different context. Um, and Hideaway Folk Family, right. because I hear it, at least personally, in the context of this like, you know... Um, of, of the early rumbling transition between like proto, you know, uh, evangelism and like late 20th century, you know, eighties, nineties evangelism. Um, I don't know if any of that carries over. I, I don't know if that's, if that's, um, legible to, to a fan who's hearing this in, you know, Germany or Japan or England or something like that. Um, but I do find it, I do find it really interesting that they, that they chose to do this one live. Um, and the idea of like scream like you're in hell. I love, <laughs> I love the kind of, um, intertextuality between that because, you know, it is, it yeah. is ultimately a song that's, you know, kind of reveling in this misery, but most, most of the recordings that I've heard of them doing this and I've, I've seen them do it live once as well. Um, most of the most of the times that they've done it, they've done it pretty faithful, you know, to the to the record. It's not it's not one of those songs that they that they radically uh, reformulated right. my experience. Um, and then the only other official release of this song, you know, there's no, I mean, there's no dial song version of this. There's no demo. Um, there is one live version they officially released on the appropriately titled first album live, yep. recorded in 2013. Uh, so let's check out how they did it. Uh, 13 years after that. Um, I'm sorry, 23 years after that. Uh, let's check that out. Yeah. So on that 2013, we're hearing uh, Marty play it. Absolutely. And, uh, 
Yeah, and it's it's cool. I love hearing the live drummers recreate the drum machine stuff and add their own little flair, but still try to keep it faithful. It's always fun to 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 hear that. And I love the giant beat force, you know, whomp that they do in the song. You know, to be two to to be two to the flat bed, father. Bed, you know, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get to the cover section here. Uh, the first one I'm going to play, Kev's Sturman on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash Kev. K-E-V dash Sturman, S-T-U-R-M-A-N. Hideaway Folk family from just a few years ago. Let's check out this cover. Hideaway Folk family Or else someone's gonna get ya Someone's gonna get ya Hideaway Folk family Better hide away you think of this cover oh i thought it was fine i think that one of the things about this song because it is simultaneously a performance of and a critique of um a particular traditional folk ism i think that mm-hmm. um covering it is a little dangerous almost because <laughs> uh because because you can if if you're too nice with it, then then you're sort of surrendering to what it's critiquing, right? And if you're too mean with it, sure. then then you're then you're you know failing to 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 get what it's critiquing. You know, I, I guess I guess it's <laughs> it's got this weird yeah, balance, yeah. Um, which is one of the reasons why I think that some of the best covers of it um, are the ones that um, sort of understand specifically the older folk influences that it's drawing on. Yeah, and I think, you know, with that in mind, I'll go a little bit out of order here. The one I just sent you this morning, Kai Pfeiffer, who there are a few people, Daryl Till I mentioned, and Kai and uh, Noah Daniel, who love doing covers, Carrie Hearn, and I actually sent them my recording schedule for the next two months, (laughs) so in case they wanted to do something that could appear on the show, and that's what Kai uh, did for me here. He did a Thunderbird for an episode I recorded last week. Um, He just sent... Uh, his cover this morning and he has his wife sing it. He sings the backups, but it starts with, uh, and, and I had to confirm, I'm like, I've never heard banjo on a cover of yours. Is that real banjo or, uh, or a really good, you know, sample? It is real banjo. Let's check out, uh, Kai and Margie Pfeiffer. That's great. Someone's gonna get ya. Someone's gonna get ya. 
Leslie Jung with the Daily Home Astrology Report. Taurus. Contemplate domestic turmoil. Aquarius. Abandon hope for future plans. this one um what i really like about it i like margie's voice it to me sounds like gene ritchie um who is the classic appalachian folk singer of american history also as i'm just now remembering this she was the first ever signee to electra records um that uh really? yeah, yeah 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 back in like the 60s i think um huh. but um yeah that straight toned um high vocal is absolutely the stuff of like Kentucky style singing um, of like lined out singing right. and the banjo really contributes mm-hmm. to this. And so to me, I think this cover works wonderfully. I feel like it really captures um, that folk family sort of vibe. It's, it, it's the sense of, you know, you, you could almost imagine hearing this version of it and believing that it was sung completely in earnest by the family or something like that you know that it's merely a fable of a song and i think that this version brings that out in a a kind of wonderful innocent way it makes me think a little bit about um one of my favorite families of musicians the carter family Oh, for sure uh yeah it's that kind of um you know you can tell they sing a lot in church and so they're singing in this you know more proper tone it doesn't have like this folky twang to it they're singing in you know more of a church gospel kind of tone but then the instrumentation is very folky and kind of this and there's a lot of really great harmonies in that carter family stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, makes me think a little bit of of that which i love uh and let's head to one that's completely different uh dominic lind on uh the they pay tribute compilation which was a, a kickstarter thing put together by my friend adam rivera um it's available on CD, I believe, still from Adam Rivera. You can email him at uh, jameskfolk <laughs> at gmail, I believe, is his uh, email. Let's uh, let's check this uh, noisier cover out. Front door, mother. What do you think of that one? I think this one's fun. Um, the 
the swagger rhythm that they give to it, I think, works uh, entirely well. And, um, you know, it, it, it reminds me of the kind of record that, that Flans himself would have made, you know, as, as a demo in 1985 as well. Like, um, mm-hmm. to me, whereas the previous cover had taken the kind of folk side of it, the sort of affectionate, you know, Gene Ritchie side of it, this is coming at it from more like, all right, what if what if we're going to up the, instead of the the folk family as object uh what if we're going to up the flans as object right so it sort of it sort of kind of plays up this kind of punky um yeah sort of sort of violent femsy kind of a thing here and there mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah i dig it yeah i love the distortion and the the raw vocals uh let's move along to one that's uh perhaps a little bit more faithful to the original and this is uh el Plan- el planador uh on Bandcamp. uh yeah let's listen to that faithful i really um was struck in a pleasant way by how much love went into this clearly a love for the original recording to the degree that they're you know getting those drum fills um and getting those vocal timbres really faithful um so yeah i mean if 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 you want to if you want to say yes this is like a beloved record of mine a cover like that is a good way to show that definitely and uh let's see here's one this one, this is actually the first cover I found 
And uh, usually I find the, the weird, I mean, I guess weird in an unexpected way. The weird covers take a little bit more digging, but the one that popped up first on YouTube was this Tom Salvatore uh, Undercover of Darkness. I'm guessing maybe it's a full elm of different covers yeah. uh, based on that title there. This one, instrumental, uh, some gentle guitar uh, on this version. <laughs> Do you like that one? I do actually, and I like it for a lot yeah. of the same reasons that I like the um, that I like the one that Margie and Kai were singing. Um, to me, this speaks to a fully charitable, authentic, you know, folk reading of the song in a way that has no snark to it, in a way that has resolved whatever dissonance. In this case, it resolves them by just jettisoning jettisoning the lyrics, right? Uh, which is the weirdest right. thing in the world to do to a They Might Be Giants song because, uh, <laughs> right? you know, because... You'd be surprised how often I find instrumental versions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, like, this version also downplays some of the curious chromaticism, you know, that, that second chord... Mm-hmm. That I was talking about, you hear a lot less of it in this version, but um, yeah. but I do, uh, but I do like how, you know, he sneaks it into this album of, um, of otherwise, you know, uh, folky classical guitar stuff, and and in that way, it's almost like a Trojan horse of a song, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. the sense of like, you might not notice it, a lot of the people who listen to this record might not even know what this song is but i know that if i for example were i don't know sitting sitting at a, a restaurant and this album were playing in the background and then this song comes on i'd look around i'd be like what is happening you know <laughs> uh, because because it is one of these songs that has uh, a weird underbelly to it and to and uh-huh. you know to 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 play it without that underbelly showing doesn't actually remove it right yeah, it's almost like this little game I play. Back when you could go and eat in restaurants safely, yeah. uh, one of our favorite sushi places in town will play. I don't know. They have all these these. They play these instrumental versions of what are typically pop and rock songs. Like I'll be hearing like, I'll be like, is this is this heart shaped box? <laughs> yeah, on like string quartet. Yeah. I'm like, man, like like you you hear it and you're like, it's so far removed from the original. You're like, wait. This melody sounds so familiar. Yeah. You're like, I got it. You know, it's a fun little game to be like, I know what song yeah. this is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This album, I bet, is one that might be good, like, working music, where you're, like, working on something, you got a little background music, and it's something familiar and, and you know, and, yeah, something familiar to you, but in a way that's not going to distract you from whatever else you're doing. Well, the other thing about it is that um, I'm hearing these covers knowing the original, you know, knowing the original very, very deeply in my bones. And I'd be curious to hear what someone would say if any of these performances were their first exposure to the song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That'd be interesting. It's like, I recently did a Patreon episode on uh, Linnell's house of mayors. Oh, sure. Sure. Which was super fun to do and really fun to, to come at from, um, yeah, kind of a, a composition standpoint because there's a lot of interesting things going on there. But anyway, my my one of my guests on there has only been a fan of They Might Be Giants for going on like three years. And the first time she became aware of the House of Mayors EP was just a, f- a couple of years ago when she heard someone cover it on accordion on the Miscellaneous T Facebook page. So she heard a cover of it. Uh, it was a processional number three on accordion before she had ever heard Linnell's. And I was like, that's that's you know not the way that i've ever because i've been into them for so long and so thoroughly it's like man that's a really interesting way and she decided to cover it herself on uh, six string electric violin that's great <laughs> uh yeah and so this last thing i wanted to play this is like i said 
Uh, one of the ones I had to dig for a little more, uh, scrolling down SoundCloud searches, uh, this Aaron Stell on SoundCloud, or Aaron Steele, it sounds like is uh, the real name, soundcloud.com slash Aaron dash Steele. It's titled, they might, be Gi- they Might Be Beats, They Might Be Beats, Folk Family Edit. Let's hear that. What'd you make of that one? Uh, obviously, we're in <laughs> Not like so much a cover. So you know, you know how on on the guitar EP. All right, we're gonna dig deep here. If if you listen to the guitar EP, it's got like a series of remixes on it. I think that these I can't remember if these are Joshua Freed remixes or or what. But there's like a progression across them where they start off with just kind of like adding some sounds and adding some beats and stuff like that. And then they get to like the far out mix and then they get to the quote unquote even further out mix. Um, or maybe it's farther out. But um, <laughs> by which point it has like zero elements of the original on it and it's just like a piece of techno from like 1992 basically. Um, right. This kind of reminds me of of that idea where, where, where you're taking elements like if you are taking samples of like little little moments of a song and like creating new beats out of them and this is like an entire thing that like sample based 90s hip hop production does right you know you can uh-huh yeah chop up a beat and you can <clears throat> repitch it and you can reorder it and do all sorts of super cool stuff with it such that when you hear it you get a ghost of what was originally there right you might be like mm-hmm. oh hey why does this remind me of this right because you're hearing a lot of the mm-hmm. same timbres and a lot of the same pitch relations or whatever um uh and yet and yet it's you know a, com- a completely different beast uh yeah and at this point when we hear a version like this you know i hesitate even to call it a version uh it is uh right it's 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 sampling yeah it, yeah it is just a totally different song and like i dig that one of the things that i'm actually kind of yeah. sad about is the very gray legal status of compositions like this, because I think that there's so much cool Mm -hmm. stuff that happens in this area. And this is also, I say this out of some self-interest because I enjoy doing this kind of stuff. Um, Technically, you know, if you're sampling somebody's work, even if you're doing something tremendously creative with it, you still risk, um, you still risk getting, you know, getting sued or having to pay some exorbitant amount of money for it. So um, it's a drag when when that happens. And uh, yeah, yeah. They might be giants seem to be very friendly to, to people doing that. And I've, I've never heard of any instance where they've come after people. But I think putting it on a place where it's it's free. Yeah, I was going to gonna say so- to. SoundCloud, they're not going to come after you. But like, you know, right. y- you can bet that if Jay-Z, you know, sampled their sampled sampled a song of theirs and, you know, turned it into a platinum hit that they'd probably say, hey, uh, 
How about that? You know, <laughs> I I, I want to know. Um, they're friends with Open Mike Eagle, but I I just recorded the or I just mixed the um, episode on Absolutely Bill's Mood is coming out today. Nice. And there's a track by Clipping the rap group. Oh, I love that Clipping. Has a bunch of yeah. Has a bunch of guest spots, and one is Open Mike Eagle, and it has just these little bits of it has the spider oh in the background, <laughs> and it also has uh some of the crazy guitar played by and why is his name escaping me i just mixed this uh the the phoned in guitar bing, coming in, in the mood. background right now i mean the the guy who played oh, okay. it okay yeah, um, yeah anyway it's 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 super cool and i, and I doubt they were like hey mike knock it off you, or you owe us money or whatever right <laughs> but he is friends with them as well so he's got a little leeway or maybe he paid them for the samples yeah who knows i I mean may have may have have asked permission and also again when you're dealing with folks who are um benevolent like them and um i don't want to suppose too much but i suspect that like you know if you that like 500 dollars is not going to make you know or break them whether you give it to them or not basically um but as soon as, as as soon as you have someone you know who's who's potentially got a lot to lose or a lot to gain you know by something then then things can things can turn around pretty quickly yeah yep. yeah and before he was friends with them he was on the show about a year ago yeah. talking about weep day um but his first interaction with them was when he he basically stole a verse from weep day and put it into one of his original songs so it's just it's got his own lyrics and then and then this weep day stuff which no one or very few people probably that were hearing it would recognize. That's a deep cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that was a really fun episode. Um, Open Mike Eagle. Uh, Open Mike Eagle did some um, uh, some. So he and I have a collaborator in common. Uh, oh yeah. We've, we both recorded with a wonderful, wonderful rapper named Samus, um, and uh, she she does a lot of oh sort of politically savvy, um, but like sci-fi friendly uh hip-hop stuff she's she's okay she's wonderful mm-hmm. um yeah yeah that's that's super cool and i also know that um oh you know the guys from uh um from run the jewels are you know fans of their stuff as well so yeah oh really yep. i did not know that yep. man people i gotta you know i have hopes to get on the show i it's it's fun finding out what people um out there publicly with you know more famous musicians uh are into them because it's such a wide range of people they 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 might be giants really touch a lot of uh, a lot of people that listen to stuff that you would not expect or, or make music that you would not expect that's awesome i should look into that find out who their management is uh <laughs> uh so that's the end of the cover section the last part uh your duty here is to score the song Score the song. Oh, you mean just like rate it? Uh huh. Give, give yeah. it a number. So we're going. What's our zero to ten? You may use decimals, pitchfork style, oh, wow. and you're you're rating it against uh, the They Might Be Giants catalog, not against other artists. Oh gosh. Um. So this one's a sleeper. Uh. In that. Yeah. In that. You know. It. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily um offer up all of its all of its bounty on the first time and. Um, I feel like enjoyment of Hideaway Folk Family, even after you have come to love it, at least after I've come to love it, still always feels deferred. It feels like it's pointing toward something. Like mm, with mm-hmm. those backwards vocals, for example, or with the idea that you know someone's going to get you, there's always something like not totally complete about it. So what I'm going to say 
is that this song is a 7.9 repeating. It is not an 8. It's (laughs) 7.9 repeating. It's infinitesimally close to being an 8, but it will never quite get there because there's always something that it leaves out. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm going to go close to that. I typically am a little bit lower than my guest scores because I have to score everything uh, on, on tape. I'm being recorded. Uh, and I keep track of all my scores here. I'm looking at what I've given sevens to, and this is definitely uh, something I like more than a lot of those. You're not going to hurt my feelings um, if you go low on it, though. It's fine. I'm going 7.2. Okay, that's it's, fine. It's one of those where it straddles that nice line. Because the Pink Album is known for being fairly like the duality of the pink album is like very sharper than a lot of uh, they might be giants albums that came out after it where it's like you got the weird songs you got the poppy songs it's weird songs you got the poppy songs uh this one kind of straddles that line nicely in that there's a lot of weirdness to it but overall is very singable and uh, uh constructed in a folky way and then it gets weird and then it gets folky again then it gets weird so i think it's got that nice uh middle area uh that they really settled into nicely later in their career i agree so 7.2 yeah and so now you just got to give some plugs should we play some clips of some of your stuff what what would you want people to hear um so i'm i'm just thinking about so i'm a musician um i make records under um under my main project these days is called a seeming s-e-e-m-i-n-g back in the day i used to make records with a goth band called thou shalt not um and when i think about what um what they might be giants fans might be into most of my stuff isn't like necessarily exactly down that line but let me let me give you one song um to go let's do uh let's do i love you citizen which group is this from this is by seeming um the song's called i i love you citizen it's off the 2017 album called a soul a self-banishment ritual and it's a love song from um from a disembodied government play people a little bit of one of your more uh, classically constructed songs i really liked venus in reverse because uh, it had that great let's do that one yeah this combination of you got the uh, slightly rock element you got electric guitar in it yep uh, it's for violin and electric guitar so let's check that out let's do it 
Why don't you plug your books one more time, and then we can wrap it up. Sure. Um, again, my name is Alex Reed. Uh, the books are published as S. Alexander Reed. The first one is called Assimilate, a critical history of industrial music. If you're interested in the noisy, politically confrontational, and sometimes troubling genre of industrial music, uh, this is your throbbing gristle through your nine-inch nails, through whatever, uh, you can pick that up. I also co-wrote with my dearest friend, Elizabeth Sandifer, the book Flood. Uh, by them, by the Might Be Giants. That's in the 33 and a third series. And uh, her work, I also just want to plug. Um, she has a fantastic series of posts that she keeps over at erudatoriumpress.com. And uh, and then I've got a book coming out later on this year through Oxford University Press on the album Big Science by Laurie Anderson. Nice. Looking forward to that. Alex, thanks again for being on. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. This was a blast. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Take care. Y'all know where to find me. This might be a podcast.com. Leave me voicemails at 224-801-2930. And email me, this might be a pod at Gmail. Those are the best ways to get in the mailbag segment. Uh we can mix it up on Twitter. That's a good spot to talk. This might be a pod. Is the handle there? Remember, join the Patreon if you want to get all of these charity episodes Perry Grip and Allie Gertz are already there for the taking upcoming is Danny Weinkoff's Brian Doherty and Tony Maimone's co-guesting episode on AKA Driver Mike Park, Justin McElroy uh, I've been talking to Dan Hickey he's going to be doing one sometime soon as well get those patreon.com slash this might be a podcast and get all that swag those magnets are pretty hot right now and they're in a limited supply not sure if i'm going to make more if uh you don't have the funds to become a patreon subscriber that's fine too you can grab those episodes ali gertz episode is down to four dollars go to this might be a podcast.bandcamp.com to grab that one remember to go review us subscribe smash that whatever you know the thing the kids say on their uh you know, those YouTubers and influencers. Yeah, go watch Jeopardy. Go watch the Jeopardy episode. It's on the YouTube. Uh, find the YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Um, planning on doing more of those Jeopardy things down the line. And hoping to use the YouTube channel more in general. So, uh, go there. Okay, bye-bye.